no trusty book up here in which to rest my notes. Anyway, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a great and glorious God. We thank and praise you that you have sent your Son into the world to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask this morning, Father, as we understand what that means, we understand how your plans and purposes through your Son are worked out in us through your immeasurable power. We ask, Father, that you will truly enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know you and live for your praise and live for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked for something and it hasn't turned out as you expected? I'm sure we've all been in that situation. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about our culture. And our culture has a great example of something that hasn't turned out as expected. And that is in the sexual revolution. Our culture is at the moment waking up to the effects of the sexual revolution. And even as it continues this revolution in life, its massive failures are beginning to be noticed. And one of these great failures, one of the examples of how this failure is playing itself out and is, is in this idea of the MGTOW movement. Now, you most probably haven't heard of the MGTOW movement, but it is a growing movement. Now, MGTOW is an acronym and it means men going their own way. It refers to men who are not only celebrate, but who are choosing to be celibate. They want nothing to do with women. And it is not just a small number of men. It is a very significant percentage of young men choosing not to have any romantic or sexual relationships with women. They are not homosexual men. They are men choosing to have no sexual relationships with women at all because they find women just not worth the hassle. Now, for a sex-obsessed culture as ours, to have so many young men turning away from women and sex, it's just inconceivable. For when the sexual revolution began, it was meant to be a liberation for sexuality. It was meant to liberate men to have more and more sex, men and women. People thought that the sexual revolution would bring around sex for everybody. They thought it would be just a happy, free, go and have sex and everything will be good. But to see lowering rates of sex and rising rates of virginity and celibacy among young men, it just confuses our society. They see the MGTOW movement as a complete failure of the sexual revolution. No one foresaw that throwing off biblical and sexual morals of marriage would result in less sex for many people. When the sexual revolution began, they were sure they would get one set of results. They were sure that this would be the thing that liberates man. But they didn't understand the world and they certainly didn't understand the God who created them. And so they did not see where their choices would lead them, but that it would lead to the very opposite place they thought they would go. This took place because the eyes of their hearts were darkened. Their choices have not taken them to a place they, they wanted to go. And in our culture's rebellion against God, God has given our culture over to the reality of its sinful choices. 
Now today we're going to consider a prayer. We're going to consider Paul's prayer. And we're going to see that what we ask for in a similar way does not always result in what we may think. But unlike the world to whom the consequences of their choices has led them to the very opposite place they wanted to go, we are going to see that when we pray to God, even though we might not get what we expect, the place where God is taking us is far better, is far greater and is far more joyous than we could possibly imagine. That is where we're going today. We are going to a place where we see that God, through his power, is going to open up our eyes of the heart or eyes of our hearts to take us to a place that we could not possibly imagine. But it is a good place set apart for us by God. Now, as some context, Paul has just gone through all the spiritual blessings that we saw last week. Joe went through those six spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ. These blessings all come to us. We have all got them. They have been given to us not because of what we have done, but because of how good God is in Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us. They are all relational blessings that God has given to us. They deal with the way God now chooses to relate to us. We are no longer God's enemies, but we are now his children and we receive all the benefits of that changed status in God. Today's passage explains what Paul prays in light of what God has done for his church and for his people. This is really the expression, okay, God has done all these marvellous things for us. What should we now ask from this great God who has done all these wonderful things? Knowing God's graciousness to us, how should we live for the praise of his glory? And he starts off, when, it, when somebody gives you something, it is only right, it is only fair that we give thanks to them. And so we pick up this pa today's passage with Paul thanking God for what he has done. And we see, for this, we see this thankfulness in verse 15. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Here we see two visible signs of what it means to be Christian. Faith in Jesus and love for all the saints. Notice it's not just simply faith in Jesus. It is also love for God's people. It's very easy to say, oh, we trust Jesus, we love Jesus, and then forget about the other half of what Paul says here, that we are to have love for all the saints. There are no solo Christians. Christians cannot do Christianity alone. Christians do Christianity in community. I've met many a person over my time in ministry who's told me they don't go to church because, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Christians are just hypocrites. That Christians don't live up to the standards that we claim are good, that we claim to live by. And let me say... That is true. Christians are hypocrites. We often don't live up to the standards that we claim to live by. There are many times Christians fail to do what we know we should. 
we fail, we bumble. None of us are perfect. But as like we saw last week, God has lavished his love on us to make us his family. To love God's people means to love sinners. It means loving failures. We all have issues we need to work on and none of us are here are perfect. Learning to love sinners though, it's not a bug of the church. It is the feature of the church because that is what God has done. God has loved sinners. He's lavished. As Joe said, like a cake or the icing on a cake. God has lavished his love on us. And if God has chosen to lavish his love on his people, shouldn't we do likewise? Being Christian means loving people who are not perfect. People who fail, who sin, who do the wrong thing to us. And they will do it all the time. Using the imperfection of Christians as an excuse not to come to church is a cop-out. In terms of our love for the people who gather with us, God has placed us all here as his people in this church. And so the question we need to be asking us, as Paul prays, are we being continually thankful for those that God has gathered around us? Are we thankful for each other? Are we loving each other? Are we encouraging each other? Are we praying for our brothers and sisters in our own church? What are we praying for people? What is our hope for our brothers and sisters there? If we are thankful for them, what are we praying if we really care for them and love them? What are we hoping will happen to them? What are we expecting God will do? What should we pray? Well, here is the good news. Paul gives us that as well in the next section. For after giving thanks for them, Paul now asks God to give them something in his prayer in verses 17 through 18. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of uh, wisdom and revelation that Paul refers to in verse 17 is Paul asking that the church understand who they are in the world in relationship to God. Paul asks for the spirit uh, for the church because he is dreadfully aware of just how spiritually blind humanity is without God's intervention. When it comes to knowing God and his plans and purposes in the world, we must face the truth. We have no way of discerning those on our own or through our own means. We are totally dependent upon God. We are blind to God's plans and purposes unless God sends that knowledge to us through the power of his spirit. Humanity cannot see God's plans and purposes without God's intervention. Humanity's spiritual blindness flows directly out of its willful sinfulness. To be sinful means to deliberately cut, one, cut oneself off from God. In sin, we simply do not see God. 
We cannot see God and we will never see God because we do not want to. And unfortunately, as Christians, we can still sin and deliberately turn our gaze from God. Hence Paul's prayer that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, a spirit that wants to know God and to know his plans and his purposes for the world, that wants to actually live for those plans and persons, uh, purposes, to know how those plans and purposes work and fit into our lives, into our choices, into our very actions every single day. He wants us to know what it means to live for God. And to make this change in our life, he continues in his prayer to ask what seems a very strange turn of phrase in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now when Paul asks for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, what he wants is that the church and its people will understand and know their own hearts and desires. What Paul is referring to when he speaks about the heart, he's talking about the things that matter to us most, the combination of our mind, our desires and passions and our purposes as they relate to what we want in the world. He's talking about the things we value, the things we live for. Paul is talking about the things that matter to us most that dictate our choices and dictate our actions in life the very things we live for, the very heart of us. That is why Paul speaks about the heart, the very things you live for, the very things that give you meaning in life, that is what is at your heart. And he wants that heart to be enlightened so that it understands the choices, the decisions it makes, understands which direction we are going, what we are truly living are living for. In praying that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, what Paul is praying is that we understand what is most important, not to us, but to God. Paul wants the church to be aware of its desires and to conform those desires and choices around God's plans and purposes, to drive our hearts' desires around the things that matter to God, to God and where he is driving the world that we understand where God is going, what he is doing, and that we get on board with him. And the very first thing that Paul asks when he's asking that the eyes of our hearts be enlightened comes out in the way that we know the hope to which we have called. We see that when he says, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. In asking that we might know the hope of God's calling, he is asking that we understand where God is taking us. I've said this many times, but it is so simply true. You live for the future you see. We have all seen those weird prepping shows. It's a bit freaky watching people prepare for the end of society. It seems a little bit nutty that people are preparing for the end of the world, doesn't it? Or does it? Is it so strange that people see problems in human society, that they think, wow, things are going to collapse, things cannot continue the way they are? Because they can't. 
Sin is in the world. That people are prepping for a future where things are going to collapse actually should make sense to Christians. Now, I certainly don't pray for the collapse of society. I know that would, that would be a terrible thing. But I do know that one day sinful human society will come to an end with the return of Jesus. That I've been called to a better place. That I've been called to a place that is sinless. That I've been called to a place that is with godly people who search and seek out godliness every day of their lives. But is that what drives my heart? Is that what drives my decisions? If you are heading for a place that is godly, with people who are godly, who make godly decisions every time, and the whole world is centred around this godliness of people wanting to know God, shouldn't that inform our actions and our decisions right now? Shouldn't wanting to know God and understand his plans and his priorities, should not that shape my decisions today? This is where God is taking us. He is taking us to a place where people are godly at all points and at all times. To a place where holiness and the knowledge of God and living for the praise of God's glory is just the air we breathe. That godliness and living for God is as normal as rolling out of bed and getting some breakfast or a cup of coffee. And if that is where God is going, if God is taking us us to this place of godliness, and he is, that is the hope of our calling. Shouldn't we be living like that today? Shouldn't we be preparing for that future? Of course. Once you understand that, then the eyes of your heart are enlightened. You see the truth and you live for it. Sin matters. And to give in to sin is pretty easy. It really is. To fight against ungodly desires, to fight against doing the wrong thing, it takes strength. What are the ungodly desires in your life? Are you angry? Are you being lazy? Man, are you looking at porn? You all know aspects of our lives that are just ungodly. Here is the real question. What are we doing about it? What are we throwing off that we might live for the hope of the calling that God has given us in Jesus Christ? To have our eyes of our heart and enlightened is to know the hope of that calling and to be prayerfully honest with ourselves about what really matters to us and to be willing to have God change the desires of our hearts that they might reflect his glory, reflect his character, that we might be godly. So there's the first thing that he asked for. The second thing 
is that we understand the glorious inheritance of the saints. We see that in here. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, Paul uses here an analogy of wealth. And I think the use of the word inheritance here is because of the means or because of the way an inheritance is achieved. You only receive an inheritance after a death. In this case, our inheritance in the saints is the wealth God has accumulated for himself through the death of his son. Jesus' death for our forgiveness created our inheritance, created God's inheritance of the wealth of his people. That is the inheritance of God. It is the people of God that God has made through the blood of his very own son. Jesus' blood for our sake makes us inherently invaluable to God. And therefore, if we are inherently valuable to God, we should be inherently valuable to each other. This is where the wealth metaphor can be pushed a little bit. You should always invest in where you see long-term value. Now, I'm not a financial advisor, but I feel like giving one of those financial disclaimers right now. You know the ones. Past performance is no guarantee of future return. But here in this case, yes, past performance of a man, Jesus Christ, is sure guarantee of a future return. God's people are an investment you can bank on because we don't live for this world. We have been all created for a better future, a better hope, a more godly future. Investing in God's people brings about sure returns. And I'm not talking about investments of money, but I'm talking about investments of love and of prayer in God's people. I'm talking about investments of time and energy to see God's people grow. The reason we can be sure in investing in God's inheritance is because of the means through which that inheritance has been created. It has been created through the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And God will never, ever, ever give up on the blood of Jesus. Because God will never give up on Jesus, because God will never forsake him, we can be sure of the time and of the energy we pour into God's people. It doesn't mean we don't take care of our needs in this world. We should. But though we live in the world, we are never to live for the world. When we are pouring out our time and effort in caring for God's people, in making the phone calls, in taking the time to have a cup of coffee, in caring for our children, in reading the Bible with them, in encouraging and spurring them on. Any time taken spent in growing and encouraging people in godliness is time well spent. And I personally know that a lot of you do this. So can I say this to you? Keep going. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for the efforts you put into people. No, they are not in vain. Though the world will constantly call us to spend time on ourselves and to spend time on foolish errands, 
Spending time growing and encouraging God's people benefits us all. And then we understand the inheritance that God has made in the saints. And so the third thing then that Paul asks that our eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, that we will understand the immeasurable power that God works in us to achieve God's plans and purposes, to see that we continue to uh, see people growing in godliness. And we see that in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Now, this third point is the only point that Paul expands upon here. And the rest of the chapter really is taken up with explaining God's power. And this is where preparing this talk for me took a twist. What I thought I would say at the start of this week as I read this passage has shifted as the week went along and my meditation on this passage have come together. When we pray to God... I don't know that we really understand what it means or what we are asking for from God. As I thought about this passage, Paul's account of his ministry in 2 Corinthians uh, really struck me. For many times, Paul's comment where he says, my power is made manifest or is perfected in weakness, I never really understood what Paul was talking about or what God is saying to Paul and what he means until I thought about it this week. And what Paul is saying, well, what God is saying to Paul when he says, my power is made perfect in weakness, is God's power is shown when we are weak, when we are not strong, that when we are going through the struggles and strains of life, that God uses the very struggles and strains of our lives to actually show uh, how great and glorious is his power. And there are two aspects to God's power in this section that come out, that we see God perfecting us in the working of his power. And the first is in the magnitude of God's power. And we see that in verse 20. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God raising Jesus from the dead shows us the immense power of God for his people. In death, we are powerless. That is what death is. It is powerlessness. We have no control in death. God raising Jesus up from the dead shows God's power over our weakest state over death. Paul is treating death here as a power, as an authority. For in raising Jesus from the dead, not only does God defeat the power of death, he raises Jesus above every other power and authority to seat him at his right hand. By seating Jesus at the right hand of God, God is saying there is no other authority that will ever be placed over Jesus. He's the top dog, he's the uh, king cheese. There is no other power or authority but Jesus in or of above Jesus. God's power has raised Jesus to that position. 
if that is where the Father has raised Jesus, if that is what the Father has done for Jesus, and we see how immeasurable that power is to take God, Jesus from death to raise him to his right hand, he wants us to understand that is the same power at work in us today. That that same power has that immense authority. There is no authority in the world above God's power. Do you think after having saved us from the power of of death and of sin, he is going to leave us defeated in the face of any other power? No way. He has raised Jesus above every authority. The kings of Canberra, gone. His Majesty of Macquarie Street, he is not the final authority. Neither does sickness, nor death, nor height, nor love, nor any rulers or authorities that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If that is what God has done for us in Jesus, that is the same power and authority still at work in us today. And God wants us to trust that. That is why he has told us about this power. So that we can have incredible assurance that we will know God will never abandon us even when we feel everything is lost. This week I had the incredible blessing of sitting with two separate people who will most likely be dead with cancer by the end of the year. And I could say of both of them that they have incredible hope that they both trusted God so much, were so thankful of his goodness to them. One of them told me about how she has battled with cancer all through her life from when she was in her early 20s. And you know what she was asking? She wasn't asking for prayer for healing. She knew her time was up. But what she was asking for that she would continue to have incredible hope and joy in Jesus. That in the power and in the face of death, that God working in her life will still bring out about incredible joy and thankfulness to Jesus. I couldn't believe this lady. She was so joyous and thankful to God even though she knew she was dying. That is the power of God working in somebody, not changing her circumstances, but changing her very character, her very nature, to trust in God in those circumstances. See, that's what we often think. And it's not wrong that we ask God, God, can you change this situation? That is what Paul says to God in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God, take away this thorn in my side. And God says, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. See, God is not so interested in changing our circumstances. And I know I've said this, but it's so important. What God is really interested in changing is you, your character, 
He's interested in making you more godly that you might live for his praise and live for his glory. When we pray to God and when we're asking him to work in our lives, we often forget that that means that God is going to use the circumstances as the anvil for which he forges a new character, a new hope, a more godly person. And that is why I said at the start, are we sure we know what we're asking for? The second aspect that Paul wants us to understand about God's power is the focus of that power. And by that I mean where does God truly manifest his power in the world? Verse 22. And he subjected everything under his feet and pointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Again, after resurrecting Jesus, he gave him authority over every authority. That means he's the top dog, as I said. But here is the important thing we've got to understand about this. The focus of God's power, the focus of what, what God is doing in the world is placed upon the church. The church is where God is pushing and working his immeasurable power. This point is a point of exclusivity. You don't have to go to the heights of the earth. You don't have to go to rulers or angels. There is no other place or other authority under heaven and earth that you need to go to know and experience God's power because God's power is found in the church. It is found in the way he changes people to relate to him and to others, to serve and to encourage and to love one another. That is why Paul is giving thanks to God for the church, for the love they have for all the saints, because Paul knows that their love is the sure example of God's power working amongst his people. God is working in and amongst his church for the sake of his people. The church is the place of God's action in the world. There, as I said, there is no such thing as the solo Christian. God works through his people as we relate with one another, as we endure the hardships, as we endure the lows, the struggles, the strains of life. That is when we see God's immeasurable power at work in his people. What God is doing is working his power through us, changing us so that we might live for the praise of his glory. That is what it means to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we see that everything God is doing is to achieve his plans, to achieve his purposes in the world. When we ask, uh, um, when we ask that God work his power in us, when we ask that God uh, changes the world, that he makes us more godly, we need to understand that God is going to use the very struggles, the very strains, the very stresses of life to make us into a new people. 
the real question we need to ask as we come to the end of this passage, as we think clearly about what God is doing, are we ready for the changes that God will make in us? Are we truly asking that God will enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see his plans and purposes, that we might see where he is taking us and go, that is what I want to live for, that is where I'm going and I want to encourage everyone who is around me, the inheritance of all the saints, to keep going on, to spur each other on, that we might live for the praise and glory of our Lord and of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us pray in the words of this prayer what uh, we have heard today. Let us pray. Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of your calling, what is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe in Jesus, that he might work his mighty strength in our lives and that we might live for his praise and his glory. Amen.